Good evening. Wow, twice in a day. I don't know if you're cursed or blessed, but here we go. All right, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We can come to your house. We thank you for your word, its instruction and encouragement to us. Help us understand. Uh, these words that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, see how we can apply it to our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 2 has one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I especially like verses 5 through 11. I, I think that uh, not only is there a great significance to it, uh, I think that it's just beautiful in its construction. Uh, some say they think it was a hymn of the early church, uh, but uh, I don't really know whether that's the case. And so that's what I usually focus on. And occasionally I go to the first four verses just to introduce 5 through 11. But it was interesting to me at one time that... Uh, 
as pastor is going through Ephesians 4, uh, the book of Ephesians, he got to chapter 4 in the first three verses, and the command was unity. And I got to thinking about that because it, I, my mind immediately went to these first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. Because really the discussion, the command there is on unity. And I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting. Especially as we look at Ephesians and the first half, of course, as they say, well, that's doctrinal, that's all the teaching. So is the second half. But it's a little more practical focus than on the individual in the church. And the first thing Paul says is, we have to have unity. And I got to looking, and, and Paul is very concerned with this. We're not going to turn to them all, but in Romans 15, verses 5 to 7, he's talking about unity at the church of Rome. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, and 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he's talking about unity of the Christians in the church in Corinth. In Galatians 5, 26, it's unity for the church in Galatia. In Colossians 3, 12 to 15, unity for the church in Colossae. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10, unity in the church of Thessalonica. I mean, I mean, this is a rather important topic for Paul. And, and I have to admit, too, I would kind of look at it and read it and just kind of brush over it. And, you know, unity, you know, we're all friends and there we go. But it, it, it's, it's a whole lot more than that. And so I want to look for just a little bit at these first four verses in Philippians. Now, the church at Philippi, as far as we can tell, was a, a theologically sound church. Paul's concern here was not doctrine or spiritual ideas and practices and things. Anything that was unbiblical, that really wasn't his concern. His concern was, was about things that had to do with maybe interpretation or interests or standards, preferences, these ideas that were largely a matter of personal choice. As far as we can tell, Philippi was sound theologically. They were very moral, devoted to the Lord and to Paul, loving, prayerful, gen generous. I mean, they, they had a lot of good qualities, but still evidently there was discord. We can just look at chapter 4 and verse 2, I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Obviously, they weren't. There was some problem here, and Paul wants to address that. It's very, very important. And, and I look at that, and I think, you know, churches that aren't strong doctrinally, that aren't doing a work for the Lord, I don't think Satan's going to try to disrupt them with disunity because they're doing what he wants. It's the churches that are really getting after it, so to speak, that Satan's going to come and try to cause some problems. And it's in this, it's, it's in this area, uh, it seems like, of unity. So we're going to look at this. Unity. Now, by the way, this is an internal thing. It's not external. I mean, you can force unity. You know, you see two little kids and they're fighting. Okay, kiss and make up. And, you know, you make them do that. Does that work? Really? I mean, now I had two, and they were boys. I don't think we ever made them kiss and make up. That was just not done. But I would ask some of you with younger kids, do you have them kiss and make up? No, good. I, I mean, it, it doesn't work, does it? At school, tell them you're sorry, I'm sorry. They're not really. You're just making them say words. 
That's not what we're talking about. This has got to be an internalized desire to have unity. Unity in the church and among believers is frankly obedience to God. That is spirit motivated and spirit empowered. And I think we're going to see this. And this passage, some have said it, it's probably the one most concise and practical teaching on unity that we have in the word of God. So let's see what this has to say. First of all, we'll read it. If there be any comfort, or if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, we have basically the, the purpose, the plan, the way to have church unity. Or I, I, I'd almost better say unity among believers because it does not necessarily just in the building. So let's look. First of all, Paul gives us the motives that we would have for unity. We've got to have a reason to do this. And that's in verse 1. And we, we read, if there, be, if there be therefore. Okay, stop there. Because why is it therefore there? We have to go back to something that came before. So I turn the page, go back to chapter 1, and really verse 27. I could do a few more, but let's just look at verse 27. This is a charge that Paul is giving to the Philippians. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. All right, this was Paul's command to the church at Philippi. Be of one spirit and one mind striving together. And so he's referring to that now as we start chapter 2. We really could put the therefore first. All right, it might sound a little more odd, but uh, we could put it first. Therefore, because of what I just told you to do, let me just explain how you do it. So then the next word we would come to, if we put therefore there first, would be if. All right. If can be a very interesting word. This happens to be a conditional clause. The idea is if something is true or happens, then something else will be true or happen. And some of this is not stated. You're to understand it as you read it. But the idea is, if these statements are true, and they are, then we should stand fast in one spirit or have spiritual unity. We could legitimately replace the word if, because sometimes we see that as a, well, we don't know, as because or since. Okay, because the, Paul's not calling into question these statements. He's simply saying, because of these statements, then some action should take place. And those actions come after if there be therefore. And they're really motivations for why we should have unity in the church. So let's see what he says. Right motives for unity. All right. These are the realities that we have to face. And two of them focus on Christ and two of them on the Spirit. They're all from God. So if there be therefore any 
consolation in Christ. All right. Any consolation in Christ. And we can say there is consolation in Christ. This is not, hopefully there is. Maybe there is. This is because there is consolation in Christ. Now, we established in my Sunday school class that I very vehemently dislike the word consolation. All right, now it's a good word. And it usually, and in this case, it's referring to comfort and encouragement, and that's a good thing. But again, I coached basketball in small school sports for a number of years and would go to tournaments, and you lose the first game in the tournament. What bracket do you get stuck in? The consolation bracket. And if you happen to win that, you win the consolation trophy. Now, usually there are eight teams in the tournament. It means you came in fifth, people. Whoopie-doo. Okay? And consolation, in my opinion, is just junk. I really don't want one. We would get this trophy and stick it in the back and then eventually throw it. I mean, it's probably upstairs. Everything's upstairs. But who wants to look at it ever again? Really, there's only one winner in a tournament. All the rest are losers. All right? Even second place is a loser. But consolation? That's a real loser. Part of me would rather just come in last and admit it. I'm a loser than get a consolation trophy. Ugh, I don't like the word. I'm sorry. It's a good word. All right? It's a really good word. I just don't like the word consolation. However, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, consolation in Christ, encouragement in Christ, comfort in Christ. Do you realize the root of the word? And I'm giving you Greek, not because I know Greek, but other people do, and I can write it down. Okay, I just want to make that clear too. All right, but it's paraklesis. Have you heard that root before? Pastor uses it a lot. Parakletos, the Holy Spirit. And what does he define it as? It's one who comes alongside to help. All right, that's this word consolation, coming alongside to assist. Okay, this is the comfort, the consolation we have in Christ. We can count on him to be alongside assisting us throughout our life in whatever we do. So the first conditional is, does Christ help us? Yes, because he does. We ought to have spiritual unity. The second one actually uses the word comfort, if there be any comfort of love. Now, it's tied closely to the first phrase, but it's a little different. The idea behind the word comfort is to speak closely with someone to give comfort, to give solace to give understanding. This has to do really with genuine concern, real helpfulness. And we have that from Christ, this idea of comfort of love. I mean, beginning in his offer of salvation to us before we were saved. And then throughout our life, the testimonies that we should have should be one that shows Christ's comfort and love of us. So it's not a question of does Christ love us? It's really the statement that because Christ loves us, we should be able to practice unity. So Paul is telling us if there is consolation in Christ and comfort of love, and there is. That's the first two. The next two focus a little more on the Spirit. 
The third one, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Now, this idea of fellowship is not having dinner with. All right, it's partnership and mutual sharing. The word fellowship here is a very intimate term. It shows a relationship beyond the norm. I would equate it quite often. You, you read accounts of soldiers in war and their buddies in the foxhole or in their unit that they go through war with and they have this special bond because of the experiences they had. Now, I haven't experienced that. I can read about it and understand it. But I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, we have that in other avenues of life too. For nine summers... I went up to a camp in New York State, and I was a wrangler. I took care of their horses. I took little kids on trail rides. Uh, we did a rodeo. We did shootouts. We did all kind of things. It was hard work. All right? We were getting up at 5 to bring the horses in. We would have a breakfast trail ride, so we'd go out and eat breakfast, and then we'd come back. We'd have 9 to 10 trail rides during the day we'd usually do a supper trail ride so we'd come back we'd get back and we'd go out and come back about seven o'clock and then we would be unsaddling the horses uh, uh, after that if we had some that needed doctoring we'd do that we'd fix the corral etc and that was on a normal day but there weren't often that many normal days it would rain we would be out in the rain the wranglers putting covers on the saddles or unsaddling the horses. There were times when it would rain and we'd unsaddle the horses, turn them out, and then it'd quit and the camp truck would come, oh, we want to give trail rides. So we'd go bring all the horses back in and resaddle them and here we go. All right, and it didn't matter the weather, it didn't matter, and this is New York State, so it's in the summertime, but they're, they're warm in the summertime is 65, okay? Average temperature in the summertime when I got up was like 50. I mean, it was cold up there. It could be miserable when it was raining. I, they got a couple of weeks up to 80 degrees, and they had about 30% humidity, and they died. <laughs> they were so sweating and awful and how terrible. And I'm laughing at them. Like, you people should live in South Carolina. Now I could say Oklahoma. All right, you just don't know. But, I mean, that, that was the conditions there. And I, I remember one time I, when it rained, you could see it coming, and it was always thunder and lightning. All right, and we had the horses all lined up, 36 horses all tied to posts, and it was raining. We were in on the porch just watching, and we had the saddles covered, and all of a sudden lightning struck the first telephone pole in the line of the horse uh, strings. All the horses, except the horse at the pole that got struck, he just stood there. All the rest of them went nuts, broke their chains, they're out there, they've got saddles on and bridles, and they're running every which way. We went charging out to the corral. We had to tackle horses. We had to try to get gear off and let them out. Some of them were still hooked up. We had to try to untie them while they're panicking. It was tough. There were a few times I'm hanging on to a horse going through, a, it seemed like a creek, and I'm not sure he's going to step on me. I mean, we, it was hard. And, you know, you go through those experiences, and you form a bond with the guys and girls that are going through that experience with you. We went, I, it's been 30 some years since I've been at camp. 30, 40, I, I don't remember. We went to a reunion a couple years ago, okay? And, uh, and, and it, was, it was such fun. I hadn't been there in at least 30 years. And I met a lot of people I worked with. But you know what was the most interesting thing to me? The wranglers I worked with, they were like my brothers. 
and it was like family, wow. The others were, were good people. I enjoyed working with them. But I spent my time talking to the other wranglers. Why? We had formed a bond through working together and working through difficulties together and going through things others didn't. That same bond is what's described here in fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit is going to be with you whatever you go through intimately associated with it, sharing the difficulty. And that should be your bond in the spirit. And really, then in extended sense, it should be your bond with others. All right, that's the third one. The fourth one, oh, I love this phrase, if any, bowels and mercies. Okay. That is the Greek form of affection, bowels. All right. So I love your guts. I mean, I guess that's what they're saying. Now, we always call heart. All right, you got the little heart thing. And oh, isn't that so cool? And Valentine's Day, you get little red ones and all. Listen, cut out somebody's heart and stick it on a card and give it to them. Oh, that's just as gross as bowels, okay? Same idea. The point is emotion, affection, compassion. This is what we have here. If we have compassion and affection and mercy from the Spirit, and we do, then we should be able to exhibit unity with fellow believers. That's our motivation for having unity in our church. Now, there's an implied negative to these motivations. If we fail to seek and preserve unity we weaken the church and ultimately it leads to sin. These are very, very important that Paul gives us in verse 1. And he makes it a personal plea. Just the first phrase in verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy. That really could be attached to the first verse. If these things are so, then fulfill my joy. This is not just a command. This is a personal plea from Paul to the Philippians. Have this unity. Now, these motivations then lead to the right marks or evidences that we have spiritual unity. And we go to verse 2, the second part. All right, four things should happen. He says, fulfill ye my joy. We tack that on with the first one. The first phrase is that ye be like-minded. Being of the same mind. The idea of the word is to think the same thing. Now, this is in a general attitude sense as far as Christians. It's not think the specific same words. Pastor will ask occasionally, what word am I thinking? And of course, he acknowledges people probably don't know. And I sit there and I have no idea. I'm always wrong. Okay, but the problem is I do the same thing and nobody knows what I'm thinking either. We're all like that. I don't, and there are very few people that can really look at someone and know what they're thinking all the time. But this idea is to think along the same lines, think the same thing, a common understanding and genuine agreement. And that's what we should exhibit in our church to one another. All right, we should be of the same mind. Now, from that, it flows right into the second statement that he says, being like-minded, 
having the same love. Loving others equally. If we are of the same mind, it will not be difficult to have the same love or to love all equally. Now, this is not emotional love. Emotional love does not love all equally. All right? Uh, I would use my kids often as examples. Um, I, I now have a grandchild. I can use that as an example. Or I can pick on some of you who just had kids and, and whatever. The point is, I'd stand up there as principal. I'd be speaking to the kids. And I would say in a general statement, as a Christian school teacher and Christian school principal, I love all of you people. But then I'd look at them and say, don't come asking me for money for a milkshake. I ain't giving it to you. Why? You aren't my kid. All right? Now, if my kid came up and said, Daddy, I need, and then fill in the blank, I would work hard to do it. Why? I love him. All right? That's an emotional attachment. I don't have that emotional attachment to everybody else's kids. So I'm not going to give them my money. All right? This is not the love of emotional attachment. This is different. This is what we call the divine love, agape love. That's a, that's a, that, divine love is not a, a good statement for it. Why? Because Paul wrote about Demas and said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And he used the word agape. That's divine love? No, no. It's not. Now, it is used by the divine but the definition of the word agape is a decision to love. I will love that person or that thing regardless of what they're like. They don't have to be good looking. They don't have to be nice to me. They don't have to fill in the blank. And that is the love that God has expressed towards us. He loved us while we were yet sinners and we were completely unlovable but he decided he would. And this is the love that's being used here in this phrase. It is a conscious decision to love. It's not an emotional decision. All right? We should have that same love for our fellow believers, the other Christians in our church and in the world. It shouldn't be based on what have they done for us or how do they look or what kind of people. It should be based on the fact I decide I will love them. It's equal to all. All right, and that should come from the same mind. Now, we have to have these first two, being of the same mind and having the same love, for the third one. The third one is being of one accord. United in spirit. Literally, the word is one soul. All right? As it's used here. This is a selfless harmony with fellow believers. Now, there is never the same level of spiritual maturity or of knowledge of Scripture or of understanding of Scripture in anybody. I mean, we could do tests and quizzes in here and find out that everybody's on a little different level in how mature they are as a Christian, how much Bible they know, how many principles they follow. That's not the point. All right? The point is, regardless of where we are, we are still united in spirit. And that's the idea of, of one accord or being in united in spirit. 
It's not that we've achieved a certain level of Christianity so now. It's that it should apply from us to everyone regardless of their level of Christianity. Now, if we're of the same mind and if we have the same love and if we are of one accord, then we have a natural lead-in or companion to the fourth one of one mind. Whoa, of one mind. That's intent on one purpose. Literally, this phrase is, and this is scary, thinking one thing. That's what Paul's saying here. We should think one thing. Now, by the way, thinking one thing is synonymous to being like-minded that we saw at the first part of the verse. Do you realize this is a circle? Now, it's not cyclical reasoning, but it is a circle, and it keeps in reinforcing itself. If we are intent on being of the same mind, if we have the same love, if we are of one accord, then we'll continue being of the same mind and increase our um, love to other and increase the accord, and it'll just keep going. That's the point behind this. It doesn't break. These are the marks that we should exhibit of spiritual unity. Now, if we have those marks, then we start in chapter 3, or chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, and we look at the means or how we arrive at this spiritual unity. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Now, we're, I'm going to divide this, and I'm going to start off with let nothing be done through strife. Interestingly enough, the word that is translated here, strife, really is selfish or selfishness. In the, I'm told that in the Old English, because selfishness led to such dissension and strife and troubles and problems that whenever they saw the word selfishness, they put strife because that's all it caused. So what Paul is saying here is don't do anything in strife or selfishness. Some say selfishness is the root of every other sin. Self-will. All right. Listen, this should be totally excluded from the innermost thoughts of the heart. In the Greek time and in the Old English people would, the, the idea was you build yourself up by tearing others down, which led to strife. It was a very consuming concept, very destructive. And so Paul says, don't let anything be done through selfishness or through strife. Don't be tearing others down to build you up. Don't do that. And the second thing is also a don't do this. Let nothing be done through vain glory. The word vain is nothing or empty. That, I mean, that's what it means. All right? And the idea of vain glory is empty conceit or self-esteem. Because this is a highly exaggerated self-view where one seeks for personal glory and acclaim. Raising the self-ego. And Paul says, if we're going to have unity, we don't do things through empty 
conceit or raising our own self-esteem, which flies right in the face of most of our world's philosophy today. All right, we don't do it. Now, the Greeks did not like humility. They thought that was weakness. They didn't, weren't impressed by anyone who was. But they also understood that this highly exaggerated view this of self-view was a problem. And they had a word for this exalted pride. It was hubris. Have you heard that word before? We still use it. Okay. And the idea is someone is exalting himself too much and putting other down. And Paul says, don't do this, all right? Don't work through strife or vain glory. Now, what do we do? He continues, but in lowliness of mind, and we're going to stop right there for a moment, lowliness of mind. Again, to the Greeks, they use this derisively. This was for slaves and, and, and unclean and bad people. It, it was the complete opposite of pride, which in, in, for a while the Greeks would exalt. The idea of pride is, hey, they are their own gods. They have their own will. They can do what they want above others. And Paul's saying, don't do anything out of lowliness of mind. Then he says, let each esteem other better than himself. All right, This is the humility of mind we should have by esteeming others better than, than ourselves. Esteem, the word is literally carefully think out or thought out. It is a conclusion uh, based on truth. It is to believe that others are more important than you or than me. All right, He says esteem others better, better. They are more important. From the word, the root of the word better, we get the word hyper. All right. Really important. Esteem others much better than yourselves. All right. Now, this is not a view that's natural to man. And I would say it's even difficult for believers. Okay. But we should be able to understand it a little bit when we look at the life of Paul. He knew very clearly the sinfulness of his own heart. And he puts phrases into his writings, and, and, and if, if I look at them and take them out of context and think about it, I'm thinking, wow, you know, he, was, he wasn't very humble. He was boasting. But he would say things like, he would be the least of the apostles. And we go, oh, Paul, you're just crazy. No, no, no. He understood the deceitfulness of his heart. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he said he was the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, he said he was the least of all saints. In 1 Timothy, he said he was the foremost of sinners. Was that false humility? No, it was a recognition of his position before a very holy God. He knew God's holiness couldn't stand even a hint of sin. And he was completely unworthy except for Christ. And that's really the way we need to look at ourselves and understand our unworthiness outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should esteem others better than ourselves. And then verse 4. Verse 4 is it's two of them connected. The first phrase is, look not every man on his own things. And really, it's look not every man merely or 
only or just on his own things. It's not a prohibition to looking to yourself and things you need to do. This phrase was taken by those who are into asceticism. In other words, we mortify the body, we beat the body, we do bad things to it, and we'll be more spiritual. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, don't look at just yourself. All right? It's important for you to take care of yourself. It's important for you to eat. It's important for you to do things you have to do. That, that, that's important. You can't put it away, put it aside. All right? But that's not the only thing you look at. And by the way, the word look is observed with very close attention. All right? Examine. Make sure you know. You should be disciplined and you should endure things, but you shouldn't cause that problem for yourself. All right? As the um, uh, monks in Rome in the 1500s, Martin Luther would talk about practicing self-flagellation to try to be holier to God. That's not the point here. All right? That's not what he's saying. It was simply don't make yourself the primary focus of what you're doing. And then it was tied to where you don't look on your own things, but every man also on the things of others. You look out, you observe very carefully how you can help other people. You know, I read that phrase and sometimes I think, well, you know, busybody. That's not the idea. The idea is we should be focused and concerned on how we can help other believers. And if that's our focus, if that's our motivation, that will help in the unity. This is a very broad statement, and it's very general. There aren't real specifics, do this or do that. But it does include the idea of a deliberate and persistent effort to look for good things to do for other people. And if our motivation is that way, if we are concerned with looking to help other people more than ourselves, then we will have the spiritual unity that Paul is desiring. And we can go to verse 5 of chapter 2 that Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. See, this is... Why? He wants us to do this. He wants us to have the mind of Christ. And we can see in the next verses that I'm not going to go into how Christ in his life exhibited these very characteristics that Paul wants the church at Philippi to exhibit. And really, Paul wants every church to exhibit. We should be able to say that we have the mind of Christ and our lives should show that. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you, Father, for the, your word. As Paul writes to the church at Philippi, a church really that we'd probably look at and say, that's a good church. And yet he was concerned with their unity, their attitudes to one another. Father, help us to be a church that is characterized by Christian unity, unity in the spirit in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask you to stand. You can have your head bowed. And uh, we'll have the pianist play a verse of a song. And uh, as is said often, hey, you, you decide if God has spoken to you what you should do in response to him. Mm -hmm. 
Heavenly Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for an opportunity we can meet together. Father, help us <clears throat> to remember the words that we've heard this evening, the word uh, that uh, Paul has given to us. Help us, Father, to be doers and not just hearers only. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.